إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا وسيئات أعمالنا من يهديه الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد باب دعاء إلى الشهادة أن لا إله إلا الله وقوله وقول الله تعالى قل هذه سبيلي أدعو إلى الله أنا بصيرة أنا ومن اتبعني وعن ابن عباس رضي الله عنهما أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم لما بعث معاذا إلى اليمن قال له إنك تأتي قوما من أهل الكتاب فليكن أول ما تدعوهم إليه شهادة أن لا إله إلا الله وفي الرواية إلا أن يوحد الله فإنهم أطاؤوك لذلك فأعلمهم أن الله افترض عليهم خمس سنوات في كل يوم وليلة فإنهم أطاؤوك لذلك فأعلمهم أن الله افترض عليهم صدقة تؤخذ من أغنيائهم فترد على فقرائهم فإنهم أطاؤوك لذلك فإياك وكرائم أموالهم واتقي دعوة المذلوم فإنه ليس بينها وبين الله حجاب أخرجاه ولهما عن سهل بن سعد رضي الله عنه أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال يوم خيبر لأعطينا الراية غدا رجلا يحب الله ورسوله ويحبه الله ورسوله يفتح الله على يديه فبات الناس يدوكون ليلتهم أيهم يعطاها فلما أصبحوا غدوا على رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم كلهم يرجو أن يعطاها فقال أين علي بن أبي طالب فقيل هو يشتقي أينيه فأرسلوا إليه فأؤتي به فبصق في أينيه ودعا له فبرى حتى تكلم كأن لم يكن به وجع فأعطاه الراية وقال انفض على رسلك حتى تنزل بساحتهم ثم ادعهم إلى الإسلام وأخبرهم بما يجب عليهم من حق الله تعالى فيه فوالله لأن يهدي الله بك رجلا واحدا خير لك من خمر النعم وقوله يدوكون أي يخودون Today then we arrive at this chapter Babud Du'a'i ila shahadati an la ilaha illallah The chapter regarding giving da'wah Because ad-du'a here means ad-da'wah It's like saying Bab ad-da'wati ila shahadati an la ilaha illallah The chapter regarding calling to la ilaha illallah Again, like we said last time, we should have a connection between this chapter and the previous chapter, 
or the previous chapters as a whole. So what is the connection? As Shaykh Al-Fawzan says, مُنَاسَبَةُ هَذَا الْبَابِ لِمَا قَبْلَهُ مِنَ الْأَبْوَابِ ظَاهِرَ جِدًّا The connection, the suitable nature of this chapter connected to those before it is obvious. فَإِنَّهُ فِي الْأَبْوَابِ السَّابِقَةِ ذَكَرَ فِي الْبَابِ الْأَوَّلِ مَعْرِفَةُ التَّوْحِيدِ Because if you remember the previous chapters we've done so far, in the opening one, he spoke about knowing Tawheed. What is basically Tawheed? وَفِي الْبَابِ الثَّانِي And in the second chapter, he had mentioned فَضْلُ التَّوْحِيدِ The virtues of this Tawheed. And then in the third part, he had mentioned the virtues of those who actualize and implement Tawheed. And then after that, he had mentioned what opposes Tawheed in terms of shirk. فَإِذَا كَانَ طَالِبُ أَلَمَّ بِهَذِهِ الْأَبْوَابِ وَعَرَفَهَا مَعْرِفَةً جَيِّدَةً عَرَفَ التَّوْحِيدَ وَفَضْلَهُ وَتَحْقِيقَهُ وَعَرَفَ مَا يُضَادُّهُ مِنَ الشِّرْكِ الْأَكْبَرِ أَوْ يُنَقِّصُهُ مِنَ الشِّرْكِ الْأَصْغَرِ وَالْبِدَعِ وَسَائِرِ الْمَعَاصِي فَإِنَّهُ حِينَئِذٍ تَأَهَّلَ لِلدَّعْوَةِ إِلَى اللَّهِ سُبْحَانَهُ وَتَعَالَى The Sheikh says, if you understood what Tawheed is generally, mankind was created to worship Allah upon Tawheed. Allah called to His worship alone and prohibited us from worshipping others besides Him. We went through all of those ayat at the beginning. Worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone and do not associate any partners with him. We went through the narrations regarding the virtues of Tawheed, and how it expiates the sins of a person. We went through the chapter regarding what opposes Tawheed, in terms of major shirk and minor shirk. If you've now understood all of those things, then the next stage, that a student may be capable of is to call others to this Tawheed. Initially, of course, it is Al-Ilm Qabla Al-Qawli Wal-Amal. Knowledge comes before statements and actions. So in the first few chapters, He's given you some general knowledge about Tawheed. Of course, all the details are yet to come in specific chapters, but he's given you a general overview of some of the aspects of Tawheed, the virtues of Tawheed, what it expiates from your sins, the entry into paradise without accountability, warning against shirk, given you all of those general details such that if you have understood them properly, 
you are now perhaps capable of being able to invite others to this Tawheed. And of course, like we said, you will build up on your knowledge more and more as we go along. But he wants to highlight here knowledge of Tawheed, understanding of Tawheed, and then calling to Tawheed, inviting the people to Tawheed. And so this is something you learn in all of the other books as well. In the beginner books, Al-Ilmu Qabla Al-Qawli Wal-Amal, knowledge comes before statements and actions. A person cannot speak about an affair of knowledge until he has learnt and understood that particular affair of knowledge. And that's like we mentioned before, the scholars they say, a person who takes all of his knowledge from books alone without the teaching directly from the scholars, then he is going to end up with more mistakes than what he gets right. Meaning, the seeking of knowledge has its roots. And the asal, what is the origin of seeking knowledge? What is the default in seeking knowledge? Which one of your senses? From the five senses that we have, which one of them is the default when it comes to seeking knowledge? As mentioned by the muhaddithun, mentioned by the scholars of the past, it is... It is your ears. Your ears are the default in learning and seeking knowledge. Not your eyes, your ears. They say the asal of knowledge is listening. You listen to the scholar and you learn the knowledge from him. That is the default and the origin of knowledge. Not your eyes. That is something which comes along with it. That you read, of course, without a doubt. But the default is the listening to that knowledge coming from the shaykh, coming from the scholar, coming from the people of knowledge whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us to return back to when we don't know about something. And the ayah tells us, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ Ask the people of knowledge if you do not know. And you remember that story of Ash-Shaykh Al-Uthaymeen, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, he mentioned a story that occurred regarding this ayah and regarding the principle of seeking knowledge from those who know, from the scholars. He said there were two men in a restaurant or some place of eating. One of them was a non-Muslim, one of them was a Muslim. The non-Muslim came to the Muslim and said to him, you claim that the Qur'an teaches you everything. It is your guidebook for your religion with all of what you require within it. It is your revelation 
that your religion is based upon, and you get all your information and everything from it. So where in the Qur'an does it tell you how this particular meal is cooked? They were eating somewhere in a place of eating with food in front of them. He said to him, where in the Qur'an does it tell you how to cook this food then? The Muslim said to him, absolutely, in the Qur'an it tells us. In the Qur'an it tells us how to cook this meal. And he quoted to him the ayah, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ Ask the people of knowledge if you do not know. So with regards to that meal, the person of knowledge was the chef. So he called the chef and said to him, explain how this meal is cooked. And he did so. And the Muslim said to the non-Muslim, there you go. The Quran told me about how this meal is cooked. The Quran guided me to understanding the answer to your question and giving you the answer to your question. The Qur'an told me to return back to the people of knowledge. And of course, when it comes to the religion and learning the religion, and any aspect connected to the religion, then it is the scholars, the people of knowledge, who have that expertise and have that precise knowledge of these affairs, that they then teach. And that has been the way of knowledge since the time of the Prophet wasallam that he taught his companions, and they taught their students, and they taught their students, and they taught their students, until you see the scholars today, those alive today, are teaching their students. And it continues in that way, hearing the knowledge from your teacher, from the sheikh, being passed on from one to the next. So here, The point is, once you have the knowledge, and you have the understanding of Tawheed, then of course you must call to it, and you must invite the people to that Tawheed. It is mentioned then, بَابُ الدُّعَاءِ إِلَى شَهَادَةِ أَنْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ the chapter regarding giving da'wah to la ilaha illallah. And as Shaykh al-Fawzan says, أَنَّ الْمُسْلِمَ الَّذِي مَنَّ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ بِمَعْرِفَةِ التَّوْحِيدِ وَمَعْرِفَةِ الشِّرْكِ لَا يَسَعُهُ أَنْ يَسْكُتَ وَهُوَ يَرَى النَّاسِ يَجْهَلُونَ التَّوْحِيدِ That a person who has knowledge of tawheed, and has knowledge of shirk, then it is not possible for him to remain silent, and he sees that the people are ignorant of of uh, uh, tawheed. This is a, this is important to think about, that a person who has knowledge of tawheed and has knowledge of shirk. And he sees the people do not understand Tawheed. It is not suitable, it is not permissible for him to remain silent without giving da'wah to that Tawheed. And who is going to be at the forefront of this meaning? The scholars. 
If the scholars they see the ignorance is prevalent and an affair is creating or causing shirk amongst the people or may lead to shirk amongst the people and an ignorance of understanding Tawheed, then they will be the first of the people to speak out. They will be the first of the people to explain, to clarify, to speak out about the affairs of Tawheed and about the affairs of shirk and about certain activities or certain actions that people do and don't do and their relevance to Tawheed or shirk. The scholars do not remain silent upon these affairs. The scholars do not remain silent and ignorance of Tawheed is spreading everywhere or people are falling into shirk and the scholars are silent. It cannot be and it has never been. The scholars, they speak out with the truth in calling to Tawheed and warning against shirk. So what do we have here then as evidences in this chapter? وَقَوْلِ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى قُلْ هَذِهِ سَبِيلِي أَدْعُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ عَلَى In the ayah where Allah says, قُلْ And when you see these ayat, and Allah says, say, and then the ayah continues, who is being addressed? Who is being told, say? The Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And this is one of the evidences the scholars have mentioned that proves the Qur'an is not written by Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The Qur'an was not written by Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as some of the mushrikun they used to claim. Because if that was the case, then why would he be telling himself, say? Rather it is Allah telling him, say. And that does not mean that this ayah is specific to the messenger. The messenger is being told, say, and then the affairs are mentioned, but that is also applicable to the believers. The believers also say that. So what is it that they say? قُلْ هَذِهِ سَبِيلِي Say, this is my path. أَدْعُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ I call to Allah. عَلَى بَصِيرَةِ Upon insight and knowledge. أَنَا وَمَنِ اتَّبَعَنِي I and those who follow me. وَسُبْحَانَ اللَّهِ وَمَا أَنَا مِنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ And may Allah be removed from any, or may any deficiencies and shortcomings be removed from Allah, far removed from Allah. And I am not from the mushrikeen. This ayah is basically telling the Prophet ﷺ to announce to the people and to clarify to them his manhaj. To announce and to clarify to the people his methodology, which is the methodology of calling to 
tawheed and warning against shirk, to clarify that to the people, and to highlight to them that this da'wah, it is only established upon basirah, knowledge and insight. So qul, say O Muhammad to the people, هَذِهِ سَبِيلِي This is my path that I tread upon. أَدْعُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ I call to Allah. This indicates the importance of sincerity. That when you are giving da'wah, whether it be that you are delivering a sermon, you are delivering a lecture, a class, whether it be you are writing a book or an article, whether it be you are having informal gatherings or sittings with people to give them da'wah, whatever the form of the da'wah that you are giving, it is vital that it's being done for the sake of Allah sincerely. Not that you are engaged in some form of da'wah, whichever form it may be, for personal gain, or personal defense of yourself, or defense of your group, or group meaning a partisan group, a defense of yourself and those who are with you against others who are not with you. It is not da'wah for these purposes. Da'wah in all forms, whichever form you are engaged in, it is to be done sincerely for the sake of Allah, which includes within that refutations. The scholars have said a refutation is made for what purpose? For what purpose? Advice. Ultimately, for the defense of the religion of Allah, not for the defense of your self. Don't write a refutation upon people. The scholars do not write refutations upon people to defend themselves. They write the refutations in defense of the religion, in defense of Tawheed, in defense of the Sunnah, purely, not for any other gain or any other reason or any other purpose. So here, the point of saying that I call to Allah is to highlight al-ikhlas, as a Shaykh al-Fawzan says, fihi at-tambih ala al-ikhlas, fa-inna ba'adha al-nasi innama yad'u ila nafsihi. Because there are some people in reality, they are only calling to themselves. And this is a fitna which is widespread in our time. How many people out there position themselves as people of knowledge, position themselves as students or sheikhs on YouTube and other social media platforms, and it's all about getting the followers. It's all about increasing the number of followers, all about increasing the number of likes and whatever else on social media, all about getting the views on the YouTube videos. Many people are engaged in what they call da'wah, and in reality it is only entertainment. In reality it is entertainment. 
to gain views and popularity amongst the people. And others, they engage in da'wah in a manner again, which is to gather the numbers, irrespective or regardless of actually calling to the truth, but to gather the numbers and to remain silent upon affairs like Yasir Qadi and their institute or his former institute, all of those types of people, their da'wah, it is not a clarification of the truth, it is a diluted call to include as many people as possible, to sell as many tickets as possible. That is the methodology thereupon. But the methodology of the true caller is that he calls to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sincerely, not to impress the people, not to gain the respect of the people, not to defend this or that or himself, but to call to Allah. And that is what you see from the scholars. And you see the harm that they came to from the people and they continue to come to for this sincere call to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with no worldly benefits out of it, no gain coming out of it. And they do not care for those affairs. Sheikh bin Baz, when he was in authority, given his position that he had in the da'wah, he was given a free car by the government. They offered him a free car for the position that he had and held. He had a free car given to him that he could use for his purposes. And it's mentioned that they would renew that car for him every so often, every year, two years, three years. They'd renew it for him and give him a new one. So on one occasion it's mentioned when the time for the renewal came, that some people, perhaps it was his own sons, they said to him that, Sheikh, the time for the renewal has come. What car would you like? He said to them, what about a Chevrolet? A Chevrolet is like your standard low end of the market, worst kind of cars that you can get. So they said to him, Sheikh, a Chevrolet. We can get you something really good, a top end, high car. You can, it's free. They give it to you. You can use it. Go to the lessons and here and there. A Chevrolet. Because that was considered one of the low end, cheap cars that nobody looks at. It's not a car that you would want to be seen in. So they said that to him. The Sheikh said, What does it matter? Who cares? Which car it is and which car it isn't. What do you mean? Forget this company and let's get that company car. Which car, how car, who car? He said, who cares? What does it matter? There's another story they mentioned. His sons, they said to him once, Sheikh, the sofas are ripped in the house. Sheikh was blind, of course, as you know. He became blind at the age of 20. Sheikh Mimbaz, originally, he could see. He wasn't born blind. He could see and he used to write and there are books with his handwritten notes in them. But then at the age of 20, some illness occurred to him and he became blind. So when he was old, his sons, they said to him once, Sheikh, the sofas are torn in the house, in your house. To, to their father, they are saying this and we need to replace them. 
He said, sitting on the sofas, What do you mean? What's wrong with the sofas? Perfectly good, comfortable, everything. What's wrong with them? Why do we need to replace them? And then he mentioned in one of those stories, he said all of these goods, whether it's the car, the sofa, whichever one of those events it was, he said ultimately all of us are going to go to the same place. Whether you have that elevated car, you have the brand new sofas, all of us are going to the same place in the end, which is that soil in the ground. All of us are going to go into that soil in the ground, regardless of what you have now, this, that company, whatever it is. So the point being, the scholars, they call to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala without any worldly gains or desires or needs, without any objectives and goals behind their da'wah, that they want to achieve this worldly matter or that. The scholars, they call to Allah with sincerity. As Shaykh Al-Uthaymeen, rahimahullah ta'ala, it's mentioned about him, he would sew up his own thawb, needle, get a needle, and sew up his own thawb when it tore. These are the scholars, the scholars of Ahlul Sunnah. He mentioned also that he used to put on, at one time in his life perhaps, whenever it was, that he used to put on a new thawb on, Fridays for Jumu'ah, and then he would wear that thawb until Thursday, and then put a new one on for the next Friday. And nowadays, mashallah, a person wears a garment for a day, and that night it's in the washing machine. I've worn it once, what do you mean wear it again? So, you see that the scholars, they are the true and sincere callers to this tawheed, to this religion, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Shaykh says, فِيهِ التَّنْبِيهِ عَلَى الْإِخْلَاصِ فَإِنَّ بَعْضَ النَّاسِ إِنَّمَا يَدْعُوا إِلَى نَفْسِهِ That this highlights to you the need for sincerity in da'wah. Because some people, they only call to themselves. They only call to themselves. فَقَدْ يَكُونُ الْإِنسَانُ يَدْعُوا وَيُحَاضِرْ وَيَخْطُبْ لكن قصده من ذلك أنه يتبين شأنه عند الناس ويصير له مكانه ويمدح من الناس يمدح من الناس. Some people, as Sheikh Al Fawzan says, they may be calling, they may be giving da'wah and giving lectures and giving khutbas, but their intention behind that is so that they become known. And that they then get status and position. And that the people then praise them. And that the people, they gather around him. And that these kinds of things are the intentions that some of them have. So that type of person is not calling to Allah. He is only calling to himself. وَالْإِنسَانُ الَّذِي يَتْرُكُ الدَّعْوَةِ فَإِنَّهُ تَرَكَ وَاجِبًا عَظِيمًا وَالْإِنسَانُ الَّذِي لَمْ يُخْلِصْ فِي الدَّعْوَةِ يَقَعُ فِي مَحْضُورٍ عَظِيمٍ So the one who falls into this affair of not having sincerity, then he has fallen into a great prohibition. And the scholars, they say, if you hear a person 
always talking in the first person about himself. And I said, they used to say, if you hear a student always saying, قُلْتُ قُلْتُ You know, you see in the books of the scholars, sometimes they give an explanation and then they say, قُلْتُ they say, Al-Imam al-Nawawi said this, that, the other. Al-Hafid ibn Hajar said this, that, the other. And then the scholars in those books, they sometimes add on a note and they say, and I say, meaning an observation that I've got, uh, just some point that I want to add on, they say, Qultu. And then they add on that little extra point. So the scholars or the teachers there, they used to say to us, if a student starts saying, Qultu, more than the actual speech of the scholars, then you know there's a bit of a problem. If there's more kultu, I say, and I say, and I say, and I want to add here, and my observation here, everything is kultu, 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 more than what's actually from the statements of the scholars, or the evidences, or the explanations, then they used to say, that's not befitting. And they used to say, don't write your PhDs and things with kultu, 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 kultu everywhere. Rather, it needs to be balanced that you show you understand what is being said, how it's being said, and it's not about you always saying, Qultu, and I say, rather it's that the scholars, they said this, and Imam such and such said this, and such and such said this, and what appears to me then from their statements is X, Y, and Z, rather than Qultu. So they used to say, don't get into that. And so the scholars mentioned this too. If you hear a person always, I say this, and I say, and what I am telling you, and I this, and I that, instead of the scholar said this, or Ibn Taymiyyah said this, or Ibn Qayyim said that, then you see that this person, how he's delivering, and what he's doing, is not really the way of the scholars. You don't hear the scholars saying, and I say this, and I say that. And that's what you get from these YouTube personalities. The YouTube personalities, it is all about I. I this, and I, and my advice to you is, MashaAllah, a person who's never studied a book, a single book from cover to cover, sitting there on YouTube now, my advice to you is, how are you going to give advice when you yourself are the one in need of advice? How are you going to give da'wah when you yourself are the one in need of the da'wah? So it is important to remember these types of affairs and understand them. That's why the scholars, they say, Kitab al-Tawheed is the best book in Tawheed obviously but Aqeedah obviously but Manhaj They say if you want to learn about Manhaj What the methodology of a Salafi should be Study and focus on Kitab al-Tawheed Look at this as an example the ayah is about Tawheed, and the main point is going to be about Tawheed. But so far in that opening section, Shaykh Hozan has been talking about manhaj. What your manhaj should be in da'wah, about sincerity and how you give da'wah and how you present that. So in all of this book, you see lots of those things occurring about manhaj. Learning how your behavior should be, your etiquette should be, your methodology should be. So that's the first point the Shaykh makes there from the ayah. When Allah says, say, this is my path, I call to Allah. Ad'u Allah. Then it's, or, and he mentions some examples within that, 
He says, بَلْ لَا بُدَّ مِنَ الدَّعْوَةِ وَأَن تَكُونَ خَالِصَ لِوَجْهِ اللَّهِ So the da'wah must be sincere for the sake of Allah. وَيَكُونُ الْقَصْدُ مِنْهَا إِقَامَةُ شَرْعِ اللَّهِ And that your intention behind it is the establishing, the establishment of the sharia of Allah. وَالْقَصْدُ مِنْهَا هِدَايَةُ النَّاسِ وَنَفْعُ النَّاسِ And that your intention behind it is to guide the people and to benefit the people. مَدْحُوكَ أَوْ ذُمُّوكَ مَدْحُوكَ أَوْ ذُمُّوكَ فَبَعْضُ النَّاسِ إِذَا لَمْ يُمْدَحْ وَيُشَجَّعْ تَرَكَ الدَّعْوَةِ Whether the people praise you or whether they criticize you, then that's irrelevant. Because the shaykh says some people, they may be giving da'wah, and if they notice that they aren't getting praise of the people, they aren't getting the position they want, they aren't getting the status they want, then they leave the da'wah, and they start becoming weak in the da'wah, which shows that their intention was not sincere. وَهَذَا دَلِيلٌ عَلَىٰ أَنَّهُ لَا يَدْعُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ that is an evidence that he is not calling to Allah. وَإِنَّمَا يَدْعُوا إِلَى نَفْسِهِ And he's only calling to himself then. فَلْيَتَنَبَّهَ الْمُسْلِمُ وَيَكُونُ رَائِدُهُ وَقَصْدُهُ مِنْ دَعْوَتِهِ هُوَ الْإِخْلَاصُ لِوَجْهِ اللَّهِ So a person must be aware of this and make sure that his da'wah is pure and sincere for the sake of Allah. The Shaykh mentions an example, اِجْتَمَعَ النَّاسُ عَلَىٰ بَابِ بْنِ مَسْعُودِ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ وَهُوَ يُرِيدُ الْخُرُوجُ إِلَى الصَّلَاةِ فَلَمَّا خَرَجَ وَمَشَوْ خَلْفَهُ إِلْتَفَتَ إِلَيْهِمْ وَقَالْ اِرْجِعُوا فَإِنَّهُ فِتْنَةٌ لِلْمَتْبُوعِ ذِلَّةٌ لِلْتَابِعِ they mention an example from Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu anhu that on one occasion he was in his home and he wanted to go out to the mosque for the prayer. And when he went out, he exited his home, the people, the students were all there and they gathered around him and started walking behind him. So he turned back to them this group of them following him now, and said to them, go away, go back. Meaning, don't follow me like this and walk with me like this behind me. Don't do that, because it is a fitna for the one being followed, that you're raising him in this level, raising him in this level, everybody at the door waiting for him, following right behind him. This is a fitna for the one being followed, that the followers are raising him above where it should be, and even if they are not raising him above his level, and they are not, Ibn Mas'ud, from the amount of knowledge he had, he is deserving for the students to come to him and surround him. Even if it is not raising him above the level, it is still, he says, a fitna, that the students behave in that way, and that they show that raise of the sheikh in that way. So he said it is a fitna for the one who is being followed, and it is uh, like a degradation for the ones who are following. So the point in that section being sincerity in the da'wah to Allah. The second point then, أَدْعُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ عَلَىٰ بَصِيرًا I call to Allah upon 
insight. And what is this insight, al-basira? This is important to note as well. Al-basira, when we say giving da'wah upon knowledge and insight, it is not that you have knowledge of the topic. That's only one part. That you have knowledge of the topic that you're going to give da'wah about. That's only one part of having basira. So what are the other parts? Knowledge about Tawheed and about Shirk, that is the obvious knowledge you need to have to give da'wah. But that isn't the only thing which comes under basira, under insight. Sometimes a person thinks, if I've mastered this topic, and I'm an expert at this topic, then certainly I can go give da'wah regarding this topic. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Because what are the other components to having insight? Wisdom. Wisdom. That's one. Knowing how to address the people you are giving da'wah to. Because people are different. You cannot give da'wah in one standard method to everybody in the world. You have now in Saudi, for example, students who have been there for years, they're in PhDs. How the scholars talk to them is not going to be how the scholars talk to the hujjaj when they come every year. And I've seen that with my own eyes. Sheikh Ali Nasr, when he used to be with the students, the way that he talked and how he talked and his behavior with the students was completely like he's a different man when he was talking to the hujjaj and the general folk. Because you have to address different people in different ways. If you only know one style, and that's all you can do, then maybe for some people that will work and your da'wah will work, but another person who's below that level or has a different understanding, then that person won't understand what you're saying, and your da'wah isn't going to have impact there. That's why they mention about a Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. He wrote the three fundamental principles three times. Once he wrote it in proper Arabic for the students of knowledge to read and understand and benefit from. Once he wrote it in slang Arabic. It's in there. In slang Arabic, he won't understand a word. Because it was the slang of the Arabs at that time. He wrote a version of the three principles in slang. So that the common folk who don't have any academic or ability or knowledge, and their language is just the street language, commoners, that they'll be able to understand these affairs. Because if you talk to them, like you're going to talk to a, a PhD Islamic student at the University of Medina, they won't understand two words. And he wrote another version which is, simplified for the kids. And these versions the scholars have mentioned, he wrote them so that all of the audiences, they could all understand no matter where, they fit into those different types of audiences. As Shaykh Ali Nasr, like I said, when the hujjaj used to come, when the hujjaj used to come, he would deliver his lecture in the haram, in al-masjid al-nabawi, with language that was not always fusha. He would do some slang in the Arabic. 
because all of these were now commoners coming from different places. None of them were really students. They weren't in the University of Medina. General folk, hundreds of them on Hajj or in Ramadan. And he would deliver the lecture in a colloquial way, in even slang words, so that they could all understand. And this is something from Basira. This is something from insight when giving da'wah, that you can address a people in accordance to who those people are. Not just in the style of speech, but also in the style of how you present the evidences and which evidences you present. And we're going to get to that later in the chapter. So Basira, it includes obviously knowledge of the religion, insight, obviously includes knowledge of the religion. Without that, you can't give any da'wah. But it also includes knowledge of the audience, how to address different people, what level to speak to them at, how to give evidences, which evidences to give. And even that, about which evidences to give. See, these are all really important points about da'wah. Sometimes the scholars have said, even if you know a certain position and certain evidences, you may actually be better off in that situation, or you should actually, it would be more appropriate that you don't explain to the people that particular evidence or position. They give an example about the Eid prayer. Recently this came up again because of COVID, but it's in the books of the scholars and their fatawa and the books of fiqh from olden times. But it came up again now because of COVID. When Eid prayer, when all prayers were cancelled last year, when all the lockdowns were happening and there was no prayers even in Saudi Arabia, there was no Eid prayers, nothing. So now when there's no Eid prayer being established, should you pray Eid prayer by yourself at home with your family? Or is that it? There's no Eid prayer then? What's the correct opinion? Pray by yourself? With your family? You're going to pray Eid prayer at home or in your garden with your family by yourself? That's your position? That's what we've heard. That's what we've heard. So there's a difference of opinion about the Eid prayer. When you look in the books of fiqh from 1400 years ago, 1000 years ago, Shafi'i, Malik, Ahmed, all of them, about the Eid prayer and the ruling of the Eid prayer, is it obligatory, not obligatory, mustahab, sunnah, mu'akkada, all these different things. And in that kind of situation, do you then go and pray by yourselves at home? Or do you just not pray then? There's no Eid prayer now. The Eid prayer is supposed to be one of the basic fundamentals of the Eid prayer is to... Gather all of the people. And it's an, a gathering even bigger than the gathering of Fridays. Because you have the five daily prayers, and in those you have a gathering. You have a number of people gathering in the daily prayers. Then you have the Jum'ah once a week, where you have a bigger gathering. And then you have Eid, where you have the biggest gathering of them. And that's not talking about what you see here. What I mean is, like for example in Saudi Arabia, I give examples of that because that's what I know. That's where I was. So in Saudi Arabia, in every area, every other street, there's a mosque. Around every corner there's a mosque. You walk a hundred meters that way, there's a mosque. A couple of hundred this way, on that street there's a mosque. Every little corner here, there, there's a small mosque. 
Sometimes so small you can barely get 50 people in there. But there's a mosque. So all of those mosques establish the five daily prayers. And every two or three streets goes to their little mosque. But then on Jumu'ah, do all of those mosques do Jumu'ah prayer? No. Only the biggest one in that area does it. So that all of these small, every two or three streets, they all come together in the central mosque of that region or that small area. So there's a bigger gathering together there. The other mosques don't do Jumu'ah. Then on Eid, do all the mosques do Eid? What you're supposed to do is the whole area, not just the small area coming together for Jumu'ah, the next small area who come together for Jumu'ah in that mosque, and that bunch of mosques who come together there, all of those bunches of mosques are supposed to come together and go out to a field or somewhere and do Eid. So every time the gathering is bigger. The gathering is bigger every time. So that's supposed to be one of the fundamentals behind the Eid prayer, the large gathering. So anyway, long story short, with regards to this, there is a difference of opinion whether you should go home and pray the Eid prayer in that circumstance when none is being established, or whether you should not pray then, and it's not sunnah for you to pray then, difference of opinion, and there is a strong difference of opinion and evidences for both sides. The point was, when this COVID thing happened, the fatwa in Saudi Arabia was, what was the fatwa by the mufti and by the committee given to everybody, which opinion? Pray at home. The fatwa given by the mufti and the, the scholars was pray at home. Everybody pray at home. The scholars have said in that situation where a national fatwa has been given to all of the people that in these circumstances of COVID, etc., there's no Eid prayer going to be happening anywhere. The fatwa is the evidences are you establish your Eid prayers at home. The scholar said it would not be befitting and appropriate for any talib ilm to come along and start saying to the people, ah, oh, yeah, but you know what? I'm not really on that opinion and you need to, you know, I'll show you the evidences. You're not supposed to pray Eid prayer at home now. If it's not being established out there, you're not supposed to pray. And such and such an imam had this opinion and such and such an imam had this opinion because that then causes, as they say, tashwish between the people. The national fatwa has been given in the circumstance, pray your Eid prayers at home. You don't go out to the commoners now and start telling them, oh, but you know, there's another opinion. I'm not going to be doing it and I'll tell you why. And then you start telling the commoners and you start spreading these things amongst the commoners. The scholars say, yes, the opinion exists. Yes, you have your evidences. You don't do it then when you go home. But in that kind of situation, it is not from basira. It's not from insight and wisdom that you start going around and telling everybody, but there's an opinion you don't have to pray. And I'm not going to pray. And such and such isn't going to pray. My, this family is not going to pray. And these are the evidences. You don't go around doing that to the commoners now when the overall fatwa has been given there. So those are circumstances, they say, where you have to have wisdom in how you do things and how you give the da'wah. The famous example they give, you've seen how some of the so-called Malikis pray when they pray with their hands down by their side. And they say this is because Al-Imam Malik, it is madhab and the reality is that's when he was beaten and he was unable to raise his hands. But in any case, some of them pray with their hands down by their sides. The prayer is valid. But the scholars, they say, if you go to a land where they are all Malikis like that, and they all believe that you pray with your hands down by your side, not holding them on your chest. 
They say, as a Salafi Talibul Ilm, if you go to that land, it's mentioned in some of the books of the scholars, when you go there, and you land on the first night in amongst their community, pray with your hands down by your side. Because the maslaha, the, the benefit in da'wah is greater for you to do that. Because when you leave doing that, you don't put your hands on your chest, you've left what? A pillar of the prayer? A wajib of the prayer? A sunnah of the prayer? Your prayer is completely valid still. So, do it. For the sake of the da'wah you can then give to those people. But if you go there on the first night, and you're going to do this on the first night, then all those uncles and elders afterwards, this guy, Shafi'is, Hanafi's, this is that, whatever you are, they're not going to listen to a word you have to say. It's like Shaykh Ali Nasr al-Faqihi when he went to Africa, teaching this book, he didn't tell them it's by Shaykh Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab. Didn't tell them who the author is. Began teaching and teaching and teaching until they realized the reality of Tawheed and they were impressed and they understood. Then he explained to them who the author is and what his da'wah really was. So insight isn't just somebody saying, I've mastered this particular topic of fear of shirk and I've mastered this chapter and I know about the evidence of Ibrahim salam, or I've mastered the hadith about the 70,000. I can go give da'wah. But rather... It is the audience who you are giving it to. It is the wisdom of how you give it. And even if you should give it, in some places, you don't even give it. Because the maslaha isn't to give this opinion or that opinion in a certain issue or situation. So, al-basirah ma'anaha al-ilm. Bal hiya a'la darajat al-ilm. It is the highest levels of knowledge, having proper knowledge, and it includes knowledge of the religion, knowledge of who you are calling to, and knowledge of the methods that you should employ in giving that da'wah. And many people, they don't have this. Because that is something that takes time to understand and to learn from the scholars. You see how the scholars, they teach. And you see how they behave with certain people compared to other people. We always give an example of Sheikh Ali, and everybody will tell you that in Medina, Sheikh Ali Nasser. Because when he was with the students, you had to be extremely careful. Otherwise, you were in for... With Sheikh Ali Nasser, he was rough and tough on the students. Purposely, to give them proper etiquette, to show them and to teach them, you're a talib al-ilm now, you need to behave like this and behave like that. And so when they used to come sometimes... Some students used to come with some strange questions. Questions that you want to just turn away and you don't want to even be seen when the question is being asked. Some questions that... There, are, there were questions, for example, somebody said at one time, Sheikh, if I, um, if I have a swimming pool, or if there is a swimming pool, and I and my other half try to use language that the kids won't understand. I and my other half, we are swimming in that swimming pool. And one thing leads to another. Then at the end, can we make ghusl in that same swimming pool? The sheikh said to him, no, no, uh, you don't need to make ghusl. You don't need to make ghusl because you're majnoon. You don't need to make ghusl. Because you're majnoon. 
You're, you're, a, you're crazy. You're a madman. You've lost the plot. You don't need to make ghusl. The pen is lifted from you. Like, questions like that, it's... You know, the point is that a person learns the etiquettes from gaining that etiquette from those who have it. And this is the purpose of learning and studying from the scholars, sitting with them for not just a book or two, but for years and years and years. And you learn their etiquette and how they give da'wah and how they deal with different people, how they interact with different people. So this is all from the basirah. وفي هذا دليل على أنه يشترط في الداعية أن يكون على بصيرة. So it is a condition that the da'i must be upon insight. أي على علم بما يدعو إليه. So he must be upon knowledge what he is calling to uh, ask for a jahil. Then he is not suitable to give da'wah. He must have knowledge of the religion before he can start giving da'wah. So then he goes on to mention the next section. Or before the next section, he mentions a point here. Ud'u ila sabili rabbika bil hikmati wal maw'idati al hasanati wa jadilhum billatihi ahsan. Call to the path of your Lord with wisdom and good admonition and debate with them with that which is better. Three things are mentioned in this ayah. And the scholars, they say, this ayah highlights to you three overall types of people you give da'wah to. Three overall types of people you give da'wah to. Firstly, ud'u ila sabili rabbika bil hikmah. Give da'wah to your, uh, calling to your Lord with wisdom. The scholars say, this is in reference to, loosely speaking, this is in reference to the commoners. The common folk, they are in need of you talking to them with wisdom. A commoner, you start becoming severe with him, you start becoming harsh on him, you start in any type of tone or etiquette that he doesn't like, that's it, he's never going to come back to you again. So the common folk who don't have much knowledge of anything, they are in the most need for your wisdom when you talk to them and give them da'wah. The second level, al-maw'idatul hasana, the good admonition. They say that is for a level of people that are above the commoners, a le- an intermediary level of people. People who have a little bit of knowledge, they've got some background, they've got a little bit of study maybe, they've got a little bit of knowledge here and there, they know some things, they know some parts, they have some little bit of knowledge. For those types of people, if they come to you now with some doubts, they say, yeah, but we studied in such and such a book, and there was a chapter, and it was about this, and it was about that, and it was saying different to what you're saying right now. They may be able to bring small bits and bobs to you. So those people require good admonition, because they are not there in order to fight against you, They're not there in order to fight against Salafiyyah, but they're an intermediate level of people who have some background, maybe they've been taught by their scholars or their sheikhs or their alims from Darul Ilm, whatever it is, and they've got a little bit here and there, and they're maybe bringing some debates and arguments with you. But if you see that they are sincere, then admonish them with goodness. 
they are to be given a good admonition, perhaps they will accept too. The third level, وَجَادِلْهُمْ بِالَّتِي هِيَ أَحْسَنُ And then debate with them with that which is better, this is the highest level. The ones who do have some knowledge, they have some knowledge and they have doubts and they have evidences, and they come to you and say, no, you're wrong, because the evidence says X, Y, and Z, and that proves this, that, the other. And such and such a scholar said this, and he said that, and this evidence said that. They have things to bring up against you. And they are maybe setting up a position against Salafiyyah. And they want to try and prove you wrong. Then those types of people, جَادِلْهُمْ أَحْسَنُ Then you discuss with them, and debate with them, with that which is better. Always with that which is better, the etiquette of a student of knowledge, the etiquette of a Salafi. That you don't become angered, and you don't become, uh, 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 you know, lose your control over your emotion. Even if he is coming with his arguments and different affairs, with control, with etiquette, you explain to that person and you debate him with that which is better, show the evidences to him, prove to him, and show some harshness to him if needed, that no, you're wrong on this and that, and I can prove it, and this is the evidence, and you're refuted by this and by that. You wouldn't say that to a commoner, a commoner who says, but my sheikh said such and such, commoner. You don't say to him, no, no, you are refuted. This opinion of yours is refuted by this, that, the other. Miskin is going to go away and never come back again. So the scholars, they say, this ayah gives you a broad, broad three categories of people in how you give da'wah to them. Then, أَنَا وَمَنِ اتَّبَعَنِي I and those who follow me, those who are upon my methodology. وَأَتْبَاعِي يَدْعُونَ إِلَى اللَّهِ عَلَى بَصِيرًا And my followers, they call to Allah upon that insight also. لَمْ يَدْعُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ لَمْ يُحَقِّقْ إِتْبَاعَ الرَّسُولِ أو من لَمْ يَدْعُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ لَمْ يُحَقِّقْ إِتْبَاعَ الرَّسُولِ So the one who does not call to Allah sincerely, then he isn't following the methodology of the Prophet ﷺ. And then at the end, Allah, Subhana. This is a, a phrase or a, or a type of supplication or remembrance that indicates, they say in English, glory be to Allah. But the meaning of that is Allah be free from any deficiency or shortcoming. Subhanallah. Wama ana min al mushrikeen. And I am not from the mushrikeen. I am not from the disbelievers from the polytheists. And this highlights again the purity of the da'wah in calling to Allah and from the foundations of the da'wah that you have your distinction and separation from shirk and the people of shirk. Then we come on to the second evidence here. An ibn Abbasin radiyallahu anhu anna Rasulallah لَمَّا بَعَثَ مُعَاذًا إِلَى الْيَمَنْ قَالَ لَهُ إِنَّكَ تَأْتِي قَوْمًا مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ فَلْيَكُنْ أَوَّلَ مَا تَدْعُوهُمْ إِلَيْهِ شَهَادَةُ أَنْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ Ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhuma mentions that when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam sent Mu'adh ibn Jabal and it's mentioned he had sent Abu Musa al-Ash'ari also to the area of Yemen, to the land of Yemen. 
Mu'adh was sent to San'a, and Abu Musa al-Ash'ari was sent to Adn. They were sent to give da'wah, and to call the people to Tawheed. And this was in the ninth or the tenth year of Hijrah. Meaning it was just before the death of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Because the Prophet ﷺ died after doing the farewell hajj. A few months after doing the farewell hajj, the Prophet ﷺ died. So he sent Mu'adh ibn Jabal as a teacher, as a judge, to go and give them da'wah. And this, as a side point, indicates the permissibility and the acceptance of Al-Khabar Al-Ahad, where a single narrator comes to you with a narration, the hadith can be accepted. It can still be accepted if that narration is authentic in the chain, and that individual is someone trustworthy and authentic, etc. So Mu'adh ibn Jabal, he was known for being the most knowledgeable in terms of the halal and the haram, in terms of the rulings and the halal and the haram, Mu'adh ibn Jabal was from amongst the most knowledgeable of them in those affairs. And the Prophet ﷺ sent him to give da'wah along with Abu Musa al-Ash'ari. But the Prophet ﷺ told him some important information about going and giving da'wah. And he told him, إِنَّكَ تَأْتِي قَوْمًا مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ You are going to come to a group of people from Ahlul Kitab, from the Jews and the Christians. هَذَا فِيهِ وَصِيَّةُ الْإِمَامِ لِمَنْدُوبِهِ This indicates that the Imam, the Prophet ﷺ in this case, advises the representative he sends, who was Mu'adh ibn Jabal on this case. And what was this advice about? Why was he telling him that they are going to be Christians and Jews there? What does it matter whether they are Christians or Jews or they are idol worshippers, mushrikun? What does it matter? He's going to go there and give them da'wah about Tawheed. So why did the Prophet ﷺ tell him it's Jews and Christians? So, so the point of that is what we said about Basira, that you have insight, and one of the forms of insight is knowing who your audience is, and the audience on this occasion was Jews and Christians, which means, as it's mentioned, they are Ahlul Kitab, they were people who were given revelation, scriptures, and they had prophets and messengers sent to them, and they believed in Allah. So they had some certain background. So Mu'adh ibn Jabal, knowing that background about them, can now tailor his da'wah, and the evidences and the angles that he uses, specifically to match and to go into the affairs of the beliefs of the Christians and the Jews and their basis which is different to the basis of an atheist, different to the basis of a mushrik worshipping idols. They all have different backgrounds and what they know. So now Mu'adh ibn Jabal was being given information about his audience, who your audience is, 
and therefore how to target your da'wah and what to say, how to say it, which evidences to use. وَفِي هَذَا أَنَّهُ يَجِبُ عَلَى الدَّاعِيَ مَعْرِفَةَ حَالِ الْمَدْعُوِينَ So this indicates that the da'i must know the condition of the audience. Who are they? What are they? What's their level? How to give them da'wah? How to approach them? So it's not just the case of somebody saying, I've mastered this hadith, I'm going to go teach it. Maybe you go and teach it and the audience doesn't understand a word from you. Because the way you're teaching it just simply doesn't apply to them and doesn't conform to their understanding. So then it says, فَلْيَكُنْ أَوَّلَ مَا تَدْعُوهُمْ إِلَيْهِ شَهَادَةُ أَنْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ The Prophet tells Mu'adh ibn Jabal what to begin with in the da'wah. And he must begin with شَهَادَةُ أَنْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ He must begin with the call to the testimony of Tawheed. That there is no deity worthy of worship in truth, except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This indicates, once again, your manhaj, and that is that you give da'wah in steps and stages. You don't just come to a group of people and you're going to go into the deep level issues from the beginning, and you're going to start explaining the deep level issues right from the start. Rather, everything is bitadarruj, one step at a time, building up that knowledge. That's what this proves, because the Prophet ﷺ told him, as you'll see in the hadith, start with this, then go on to this, then go on to that, one step at a time. Another evidence, many of them, but another evidence they use is, when the Prophet said, Ya ghulam, inni u'allimuka kalimat. Oh young boy, I will teach you some words. Another evidence that you start stage by stage, bit by bit. Not that I will teach you everything, but I will teach you some words, some pieces of that knowledge, and then you continue to build up thereafter. So again, this is from the manhaj and the understanding of how to give da'wah, that you don't just go in there with deep levels that maybe the beginners will not understand, they won't have an idea of. And that's why when you look at the books of the scholars of old, they are very much complicated compared to the books today. Because their style that they wrote in was for a different people. Many of them were writing hadith and compiling hadith, and their students learned that and they could do that. But a person today comes and reads those books and they barely make sense to a person. But you read the books of uh, Shaykh Al-Fawzan, etc. They are written in an easier way for the audience. Shaykh Al-Fawzan even says in one of the introductions of one of his books, I have written this in a style that the general masses can understand. So, he said to him, start with the tawheed of La ilaha illallah. Because every other affair, every other part of the da'wah is going to be built upon them accepting La ilaha illallah. If they don't accept that, then the rest of it is going to be null and void anyway. None of the rest is going to be acceptable if they are not upon tawheed to begin with. That's why a person could fast, he could give zakat, he could do hajj, he could pray five times a day. If he doesn't accept la ilaha illallah, all of his actions are null and void. 
So it is about the beginning with Tawheed. Then the Prophet tells him, فَإِنْ هُوَ وَإِنْ هُمْ أَطَاعُوكَ لِذَلِكَ فَأَعْلِمْهُمْ أَنَّ اللَّهَ افْتَرَضَ عَلَيْهِمْ خَمْسَ صَلَوَاتٍ فِي كُلِّ يَوْمٍ وَلَيْلَةٍ If they obey you in that, meaning if they accept that there is no deity worthy of worship, in truth accept Allah, then tell them and teach them, أَنَّ اللَّهَ افْتَرَضَ عَلَيْهِمْ خَمْسَ صَلَوَاتٍ فِي كُلِّ يَوْمٍ وَلَيْلَةٍ Then tell them that Allah has obligated upon them five prayers every day and every night. Meaning if they don't accept Tawheed, then it won't be any point in telling them to pray there five prayers every day and night. That only comes upon the basis of their acceptance of Tawheed to begin with. And then he tells him, فَإِنْهُمْ أَطَاعُوكَ لِذَلِكَ And if they accept and obey you in that also, فَأَعْلِمْهُمْ أَنَّ اللَّهَ افْتَرَضَ عَلَيْهِمْ صَدَقَةً تُؤْخَذُ مِنْ أَغْنِيَائِهِمْ فَتُرَدُّ عَلَى فُقَرَائِهِمْ Then tell them about zakat. So Tawheed first, if they accept that, the prayers, if they accept that, zakat. Tell them about the zakat, which is taken from the rich ones amongst them, and distributed and returned back to the poor ones amongst them. فَإِنْهُمْ أَطَاعُوكَ لِذَلِكَ فَأَعْلِمُمْ أَنَّ اللَّهَ افْتَرَضَ عَلَيْهِمْ صَدَقَةً تُؤْخَذُ مِنْ أَغْنِيَائِهِمْ فَتُرَدُّ فِي فُقَرَائِهِمْ وَهَذِهِ هِيَ الزَّكَاءُ وَهِيَ قَرِينَةُ الصَّلَاءُ فِي كِتَابِ اللَّهِ وَفِي سُنَّةِ رَسُولِهِ Zakat is always mentioned along with the prayer. You'll notice that in the Qur'an, prayer and zakat, they come together often. And he tells him, the Prophet tells him that this zakat is taken from the rich, those who have the amount that qualifies for zakat to be given. And then it is given to those who are the poor, and that is one of the categories of the people who can receive the zakat. This therefore indicates that generally speaking, the rich people are not eligible for zakat. But there are some exceptions within the categories, and that's uh, another topic. فَإِنْهُمْ أَطَاعُوكَ لِذَلِكَ فَإِيَّاكَ وَكَرَائِمَ أَمْوَالِهِمْ And then the Prophet ﷺ gives him more advice that if they obey you in that, be warned from taking the best of their wealth. When taking the zakat, it's mentioned in the books of fiqh, the rulings of zakat, you don't take the, the best of the wealth of someone, the top of the wealth of someone, but you take the middle and the average of that wealth that they have. Like somebody has camels or, or sheep or other things, you don't take the best of what they have, but you take the middle of what they have. So, وَإِيَّاكَ وَكَرَائِمَ أَمْوَالِهِمْ And be warned, from the karaim, uh, from the uh, valuable and the best of their wealth. And then the Prophet ﷺ tells him, وَاتَّقِي دَعْوَةَ الْمَظْلُومِ فَإِنَّهُ لَيْسَ بَيْنَهَا وَبَيْنَ اللَّهِ حِجَابٍ And be warned from the dua of the oppressed one. Because there is no barrier, nothing stopping the dua of the oppressed one. 
going to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there is no barrier between the dua of the oppressed, there is no veil between the dua of the oppressed and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even if the dua of the oppressed comes from a kafir or a fasiq who is oppressed, then it applies within this narration. The main point of this narration then is bayan manhaji da'wah. وَهَذَا أَصْلٌ عَظِيمٌ وَهُوَ أَنَّهُ يَتَدَرَّجُ فِيهَا وَيَبْدَأُ بِالْأَهَمْ فَالْأَهَمْ That the main point in this is the style of the da'wah, that you begin step by step in that da'wah, and of course about the audience and how you target and how you level that da'wah for the people that you are addressing. And that is all from the basirah, from the knowledge and the understanding and the insight of how you are going to give that da'wah to a person. We'll conclude upon that one for today and we'll finish off the final narration in this chapter next week, inshallah, which is the narration about the Battle of Khaybar and the incident regarding Ali ibn Abi Talib, but we'll do that from next week, inshallah ta'ala. We'll conclude upon that point for today. Next week we'll carry on then. Next week the class will be on, inshallah, conference is cancelled. So we can carry on next week and do the class at the normal time, inshallah ta'ala. Any questions up to there then? Stan, I've got a question. Um, I was sat with some people and uh, one was saying to the other that when you yawn, you should say, A'udhu Billah Min Shaitan Rajeem. And I said, um, where did you hear that? Yawning, is there anything that you're supposed to say when you yawn? Is there any authentic hadith? Anybody? Cover your mouth. Is there any dua specifically for yawning? I don't remember anything. So it's up to him to give you an evidence and bring it and show us as well. And if there is an authentic evidence, we'll benefit as well. Anybody else? Um, you mentioned um, Abu Musa al-Ash'ari was also sent to Yemen. Why was he sent to? Adal. Adal. And Mu'ad. Um, Sana'ah. Can you read the du'a of the Adal after the Uqama? Or is it just after the Uqama? There is an opinion of some of the scholars that you can repeat all of the supplications that you do after the Adhan, after the Iqama too. But it's not the strongest opinion. Hmm. What are you supposed to reply to that? Normally, in all of the other parts of the Adhan, you reply with the normal words apart from Hayya ala salah. In that one you say La hawla wa la quwwata illa billah But what do you say for As-salatu khayrun min al-nawm? There's nothing else. There's no other specific supplication mentioned for that part. There is nothing else specific mentioned for that part.
Anybody else? How do you uh, deal with the issue of not addressing the audience at that level? So, for example, you might give a class now, Muslim Brothers, and students in Norwich, and if you were to refute somebody, and then that recording is put on YouTube and the comments see it, and then it creates more fitna, like, how do you deal with that kind of issue? No, that, that's uh, out of your control. We, I mean, here now, the physical class is happening here. So, whatever is being said and how it's being said, it's being said for this audience primarily. It's impossible to know what's going to happen with the online audience afterwards, who they are, what they are, YouTube. All of those things are out of our control. So here, it's only going to be done, judged upon, and based upon what you see in front of you. What's going to happen afterwards is a different thing. That can be... I mean, we were doing some classes in the sciences of hadith last year. Those are now online. A commoner may come and log on to that and listen for an hour and not understand a word, but what am I supposed to do? What is anybody supposed to do? You can't not teach certain things because someone might see that afterwards. You can only judge upon the audience that you have. So if we, for example, end up refuting someone or a mentioning of somebody's name and the refutation of the scholars upon them, then that is judged upon the audience or the questions being asked. If people see it on YouTube and things afterwards, that's out of our control. Nothing can be done. Uh, in the university, the scholars, when they used to teach in the haram, which are public open lessons, they used to teach in a particular style. And when they used to come to the university, when we had our university classes at the university, private, just the students, 20 students in the class, 30 students in the class. Some of the scholars, they used to say, nobody record the class inside the university classroom. And they used to say, because how I will behave with you is completely different to how we are going to interact and behave with the people in public, in the, in the haram. It's a different thing. In the classroom, you're with your students, you can relax a bit more. And there were scholars... You would, you would never, ever hear them say any kind of joke or uh, any, anything to make you laugh in public. Never, ever. But in the class, in the university, they would sometimes make jokes. And the first few times it happened, you didn't know whether to laugh. Because you never, ever heard this particular sheikh ever joke or, or mention any type of joke or light-hearted comment, ever. And then all of a sudden in the class he does it. And you slowly laugh thinking, is it a joke? Are we supposed to laugh? <laughs> because the, the interaction is different. But here you can't do those things. You can't, it's impossible to say nobody record this or only give it to certain people. Outside, we can't control what happens. possible those kind of situations as well but it, it's it's about the example of the maliki one was about somebody as a talib al-ilm who's going to give da'wah if you're not you're just passing through uh, you landed off the airport transit you went outside you're praying they're all malikis you pray how you want in half an hour you're going to be gone in your flight or elsewhere there's no effect upon you in any way so it's about the situation it doesn't necessitate you're going to leave things for any reason, it has to be some specific reason, and the example they gave there is da'wah. If you want to give da'wah to those people, you may have to just allow certain things which are sunnah acts, not wajib or rukan or anything. You can't give up those things, obviously. But some sunnah act may be for the maslaha to begin with. 
But if there's no maslaha anyway, you're just praying that you're going to go afterwards, then it may not be a problem. Somebody else had a question there? Ah, oh, go on. No, if it's fiqh reasonings, it's allowed. It's like uh, when you come out of the rukur, put your hands up here or put them down by your side. Sheikh Al-Bani and Sheikh Bin Baz had different opinions to each other. But Sheikh Al-Bani said, if I pray behind Sheikh Bin Baz, I'll just do it the way he does it. Because إِنَّمَا جُعِلَ الْإِمَامِ لِيُؤْتَمَّ بِهِ The Imam has been made for you to follow behind him. So in fiqh differences like that, it's possible. It's a fiqhi difference. There are evidences on both sides. Potentially in some of those areas you could do things slightly differently, which are all within the evidences. You had one already today. One at a time. The lay people ask a question about about whether it's allowed for them to blindly follow. Because there's the brother that's telling everyone blind following is haram. So these brothers, the lay people, refer to the videos of Sheikh bin Baz and Uthaymeen. Basically, they say blind following is haram for the alim, but for the lay person, it's allowed by necessity. Sheikhs Qazan and Uthaymeen say that. In in reputation, a video video was put for you. Basically, these YouTubers seven minute conversation where you actually uh, reading from uh, Bloom Maram, uh, the Hadith of Ibn Abbas, where he says, uh, I tell you from the Prophet, and you say Abu Bakr and Umar, you're using Islamic Sheikh and uh, Sheikh Al Fazan, and they're using that Islam to actually refute Sheikh Fazan to you that it's permissible for the uh, lay person to do uh, the police. Or that's why, that's that. why we can't control what happens on YouTube. <laughs> this is now using the speech of a nobody to refute Sheikh Fazan and to refute uh, their position, or uh, Sheikh Al-Fazan and Sheikh Al-Fazan. They're using you, start, uh, your own speech, when you're reading from Sheikh Fazan, his own speech, in, in, in effect, to refute him. When, when it's actually uh, addressed to the students of knowledge of the speech of Sheikh Fazan. So this is the thing, when you don't understand the fatwas of the scholars, and you start doing that kind of thing there, you take the speech, you know, it's it's... One of the problems here is understanding the levels of the people. That you, how can somebody possibly do that? To take a person from the West, and when you look at the levels, you have the scholars, Sheikh Fawzan, Sheikh Rabia, etc. You have all the senior major scholars of our time, Sheikh Fawzan, Sheikh Al-Hidan, the Mufti, Sheikh Rabia, Sheikh Ubaid, you know, all the major senior scholars, Sheikh Abdul Masih Abbas, Sheikh Al Nasr Faqihi, etc. Then you have their students, the senior major students who to us and to anybody in the West, they are sheikh compared to our levels. The senior major students of the scholars there. Some of them, when we talk about students, the senior students, some of them are in their 60s and they are considered a senior student. Uh, the the Sheikh Abdul Muslim Abbad, his reader, the reader who used to read for him, he himself, to the levels of what we were, because he was one of our teachers in the university. He's a sheikh, an alim compared to our levels. Yet he, in the context of things, is only regarded as a, as a talib. He's a student. Then after that, you start looking at everybody below that, and it's like, a, a, like when you look at, for example, the earth. They show you the picture of the earth. So you can see the earth. That's the sheikh, the scholars. Then the students, you can see the continents. Then, you can, then below that, maybe you can see some big landmarks the big lights of the cities. Then below that, right at the bottom, the westerners and everybody else, dots, you can't see anything. Little dots everywhere. You have to realize the levels of the people. And there's, the problem is if people don't understand Arabic, 
and they are relying upon English, then all of a sudden the English speaker becomes at the level of the student of knowledge and the level of the Sheikh. And like we were saying the other day, Sheikh Fawzan, I think somebody mentioned, Sheikh Fawzan said, only call me a student of knowledge. Sheikh Al-Albani used to say, only call me a student of knowledge. The reality is people are not properly understanding the levels. The levels of the scholars and then the levels of their students and their students and their students and I don't know where anybody here would end up in that list, if anywhere. So to do this is a mistake in the first place. That's a mistake and it's incorrect for anybody to try and do something like that. Because they are putting things together which have no context together. Putting things together that have no context together. If you do that kind of thing, you could do it for anything, any issue. You could say uh, one of the students in the West, he said uh, the opinion about putting your hands on the chest and he gave a lecture and there could be some lecture, there could be some article. And then he said, look, he refuted Sheikh Al-Albani or refuted Sheikh Bin Baz. How did he refute Sheikh Bin Baz? Barely the dirt of Sheikh Bin Baz's shoes, reality. So uh, the levels are not really being understood to do this kind of thing. That shows that it's not... The, the levels of the people are not being understood to do that. And then the context is clearly not being understood to try and say this is a refutation of that. Scholars have said you can blind, not blind follow, but you can follow a particular madhab or a particular way when you're right at the beginning of your talabul ilm, you're a, a simple commoner just starting to learn. Then you could, you know, you learn from one particular sheikh and you learn all of his books and you start learning all the knowledge. And then slowly you can expand out and learn different opinions and learn different sections. It's like even the scholars used to say to us at the beginning, when you're learning fiqh, don't start with the books of Sheikh Al-Albani. They used to say to us, don't start with the books of a Sheikh Al-Albani. They said, because if you start learning fiqh from the books of a Sheikh Al-Albani, that's it. You're going to become a blind follower. You're not going to want to listen to anything. Because the strength of the argument Shaykh al-Albani brings, the strength of his evidences he brings, once you read into that and you delve into that, there's no way to suck you out. Even if one of his opinions is wrong. And there are some opinions where the opposite opinions do appear to be stronger than Shaykh al-Albani's opinions. But when you read into his opinions, you think there's no way anybody could refute that. And you become completely sucked in. And they used to say, don't start learning fiqh like that. Don't start learning just the opinions of Shaykh al-Albani, for example. Because you'll be completely engrossed in that. You'll think there's no way it can be refuted. And so when you start learning the other affairs, it doesn't really register to you properly. So they only say you can do that at the start when you're a beginner student. You're trying to learn step by step, moving up. But then afterwards, you can't just stay blind upon one way. And that's where all those opinions that come in, of the uh, statements of the scholars come in. That you cannot blind follow us, anything you find from us, which is against the sunnah, then forget what we said, follow the sunnah. There's no blind following of a madhab. The people who want to use evidences to say you can blind follow a madhab, they try to use these evidences of the scholars and statements of the scholars. No scholar says you can just blind follow a madhab. No scholar. They only say at the beginning, in your starting stages of studying, maybe for a start, you could just stick to one sheikh or one scholar, start learning, and then you open up. Where's the level of differentiation between starting up on a madhab and then being qualified to move on to the opinions within that madhab or outside that madhab? Well, that's uh, in, over there, they used to take at least a year, the first year or a year, a year and a half, and then you start doing all the uh, fiqh al-muqarin, the different opinions and the comparative fiqh. 
that's different, you know, when you've done certain books and certain levels, you can start moving and improving up, but that's it's going to be per student and how they improve. You had one as well, anybody else? Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, I was only talking about the Muslims. Uh, uh, scholars, when they, uh, uh, in one of the subjects in the university, we study those, uh, we study the methodology of da'wah. And they used to mention this ayah as a methodology of da'wah in terms of the Muslims. Some Muslims are commoners, some are a bit more knowledgeable and maybe bring some points to you. Some are arguing with you. It was talking about the Muslims. The kuffar, it's a bit more general. The kuffar, it's a bit more general because all of them ultimately have a common basis, which is kufr, which is different to the Muslim and the different groups of the Muslims. Anything else? Anybody else? Last question and go on. So some people stand with their feet very wide apart so that their shoulders aren't going to meet with the shoulders of the next person because their feet are outside of the line of their shoulders. As Shaykh Al-Hameed said, when you stand in the prayer, you're supposed to stand your normal, natural, average stance. It's like what we gave the example last time. Somebody says to you, stand up. You're not going to stand up with your legs there and there, about to fall over. Nobody's going to do that. Somebody says to you, stand up. You're not going to stand up, feet touching each other. Who would do that? When someone says to you, stand up, who would stand up and join their feet together? Someone flicks you and you're going to fall down. Who would do that? Nobody. That's not how you stand up. When you stand up, you have your natural stance with a natural gap there. That's how you stand for the prayer. Too far wide is not suitable. Right up together, joined and squashed is not suitable. A normal stance with a normal position and gap between the, prayer, uh, between the legs. And that's mentioned by Ash-Shaykh al in the Prophet's prayer described. Shoulders width roughly, so that the shoulders can join and then the ankles can join. They're all in line, they're going to join. So we'll conclude upon that for today then. Inshallah ta'ala, resume next week at the same time after Isha.